Maguire, Wallace to his left, and he's on his way. 10, 9, 5, 3, cut down! Wonderful try! We have a mole, Jim. Digs like a demented mole there. He just bursts through the defence. Just watch this. Spillane gathers beautifully. In go the Irish forwards. This is Lennon. Bursting into the 22. Back to Bradley. Back to Kiernan. The drop of goal is over. Michael Kiernan has done it. Good evening and welcome to the Molecast. Good evening. Good evening. Looking back over the Autumn Nations series, in the last 10 minutes, England unleashed their plan for the World Cup where they uh, scored three tries against the All Blacks and pulled a draw out of the fire. They ran into space, they passed well, and they drove themselves over the line. But the rest of the time, they skillfully kept their plans for the World Cup hidden by losing to everyone <laughs> they could. Um, I'm being the second best team of the pitch against Japan, and yet, but yeah. because they're playing at home. So, um, what can you tell from this 10 minutes period where they accidentally reveal their hand out of sheer panic? SFA, I'm completely fascinated by, by Eddie Jones, the amount of, how, how much he holds the RFU in thrall. Um, Jones had a very successful 2019. England finished fifth in the 2018 Six Nations. They went into their October internationals that year with a very narrow win. They won 12-11 over South Africa, lost 15-16 to New Zealand, then had a reasonably um, comfortable win, but not uh, a thrashing of Japan, 35-15, I think, and then pulled out a good win at the end against a tired Australian team, 37-18. So after the 2018 Six Nations, he Jones performed quite a bit of surgery, and they ended their autumn internationals on the up with a with a resounding win in their final test before going into the 2019 Six Nations. I remember the 2019 Six Nations, I, I expected Ireland, and I think almost everyone in, in the stadium expected Ireland to beat England, and instead England absolutely beat the shit out of us, hammered us. And from then on, even though England didn't actually win the Six Nations that year, that was... that tests set down a marker they've emphasized that with a, a drubbing of, of ireland in twickenham 57 15 in the autumn internationals before having a very very successful world cup granted they didn't win in the final but if you, their quarterfinal performance against australia was dominant and their semi-final performance against new zealand was outstanding so the i the rfu and a significant portion of the english rugby public think that eddie jones is going to again pull the rabbit out of the hat turn around after an ordinary uh, <clears throat> 2022 Six Nations and and then come good in 2023 with a whole bunch of hidden tactics and, and you know, perform possibly even better and win the World Cup in 2023. I don't think it's going to happen. I think that Jones at this stage of the campaign has a lot more of his preferred pieces in place compared to where he was in in autumn 2018 in terms of he's had shown selectorial consistency of fullback with Stewart and this is the three big tests they played in uh, in autumn against the uh, rugby nations or the rugby championship side so Stewart is, is in situ for all three Manu Tuolagi, Owen Farrell, Marcus Smith in situ for all three 
uh, and that's just starting, not just in the in the lineup. Then uh, Tom Curry, Billy Vunapola, uh, Kyle Sinclair, and Johnny Hill. Uh, Atoje played in all four tests, uh, two at blindside, two in the second row. So I'm not uh, excluding him, but that's like eight players of his of his you know players that he wants to be in his team are in there. It's more than half the team. There's other players who played in, like Johnny May would have played in four. He came back quickly from a, a dislocated elbow, amazingly quickly. He played in three games. With Atoje, that's getting on towards 10 players. 10 of the players he wants in his team are already there. So he wants to move on from Youngs, but Van Poorfleet has, has found the step up much harder than he expected it to be, I, I, I think, at, at scrum half. Uh, Genj, he tried to Genj would have started all three He tried to do a bomb squad And he, he moved Dickey and Genj to the bench against South Africa Starting Marco Vunapola and Jamie George And that didn't work He took off his, his front row at half time and, and put in what had been his starting front row And the other two rugby championship tests Back in So Eddie Jones has the team he wants And more so He's had a lot of that team For five, five years Six years, seven years in some cases he gave Genge, Kevin Dickey, Sinclair, and Atoje their first caps in 2016, his first Six Nations. Tom Curry, he brought into the team in 2017. So guys like Jamie George, Michael Vunapola, Billy Vunapola, Courtney Laws, uh, Owen Farrell, Henry Slade, um, Johnny May, uh, Jack Noll, they were all in the 2015 Rugby World Cup squad under... Stuart Lancaster. So the interesting thing for me is that Jones has really only brought three players into the mix in the last four years. That's a straight swap out of George Ford for uh, Marcus Smith. Then he's replaced uh, Elliot Daly with Freddie Stewart. And he's replaced George Cruz with uh, Johnny Hill. So this idea that they're working towards this um a different game plan you're going well like how is it taking so long to make a different game plan when you're familiar with all these players you keep on picking a lot of the same players and uh why is there like is, is it is it realistic to believe that eddie jones operates under a completely different scenario than every other international coach i.e win today win tomorrow that he's only bound he's convinced his board that the only important uh, rugby games is are, uh, one tournament every four years because that sounds to me like a strong degree of what we in the sporting world in Ireland came to know as board capture from the John Delaney extravaganza because like, rugby is is like there's a European Championships every single year in rugby called the Six Nations uh, and England have you know won it once in four years country with a huge playing population and you know for some of those years France were tragic um so I think that Jones doesn't necessarily have any special tricks up his sleeve that he's saying yeah it's not a straight line because you know the other teams are trying to beat you yeah but also because like you're picking the same players as you previously were for the most part and they're not responding do you have any views on Mr. Jones that you want to share? I thought 
that um, <clears throat> I was trying to remember who he picked it at half, and of course he picked Ford and Farrell at uh, for the World Cup. For the World Cup, but I'm trying to remember what he picked throughout that World Cup. Did he pick them to start against New Zealand? Yes, and against Australia, and against Australia. Yeah, so that that came good from because when you were <clears throat> so. I think England played better with one playmaker, even though conceptually, theoretically, I like the idea of having two playmakers in the midfield. Um, and you don't, you don't have to have them at 10 and 12. You know, you can have them at 10 and 15. Mm-hmm. Um, or, I mean, if you've got a really good playmaking uh, winger, you, you can give yourself an opportunity of, you know, putting wrinkles into mm-hmm. the game. But, you know, m- more than likely having guys who are in the middle of the park... Uh, or having guys who were either side first receiver means 10-12, 10-15 works best. But when they played against Ireland, I thought having Manu at first and Henry Slade at second, having Henry Slade's kicking game added to Elliot Daly's kicking game. Added to Farrell, added, added to, to Farrell, Ben Young's. Added to Ben Young's, um, particularly with Robbie Henshaw playing fullback when he hadn't played fullback at all. Um, they victimised us. Mean, meant that they were really well set up. But it also... It, 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 I thought it suited them. I also think that England's best back row is uh, Curry, Underhill, and one other, which is when you pick two small guys relatively height-wise, it's Billy. Or if they had a big line-out number eight, it would be him, but they don't. Like, they've mm-hmm. got Don Brandt or Billy, or else you've got Simmons. But if you play Simmons with Underhill and... You've got three midgets. Curry, your line-out is... Your line-out's struggling. Because Mario Toje's like not an enormous man, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and he'd be one of your second rows. So he's he's shown a real preference for picking a Toje or Laws or like a a third, second row yeah. as his number six. And he had like two playmakers in the middle of the park, neither of which actually, I don't think, work for him. I think he'd be better off picking... And Underhill's injured, so... It, it's amazing to think that with the amount of players that England have, that they're that uh, reliant on on one particular, you know, on guys, <laughs> very particular guys. Um, but, you know, like I, I think if he had Simmons and Curry playing flanker and uh, Billy, I think he'd be better off with it. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the back row that started against New Zealand. Yeah, so I think... That's one aspect of it. And then I think selection-wise, um, before Stuart Lancaster took over Leinster, which would obviously bias me towards him, I thought he'd done a very good job with making the awkward break with the England 2003 team that was still there in 2011. Like mm-hmm. A lot of those guys, if they were still playing, were still in the squad. Like They were really hard to drop. Whereas Lancaster came in in the beginning of 2012 to England and made a break. He, he dropped all of them. Like Wilkinson had made the decision to retire, but Lancaster consciously broke with 2003, which England had been unable to do up until like a few months beforehand. And then had to go through the awkward process of finding guys who could actually play international rugby rather than guys who were deserving of being, you know, the best pros in England at mm-hmm. domestic level. And he set it up where there was a good team in place that when Eddie took over, like if, if Maro Otoji wasn't a regular at that stage, it was only a matter of time before he grew old enough. Otoji was, uh, was in his, um, 
I told you and Kevin Dickey were both in his uh, Lancaster's 50-man training yeah. squad for the World Cup. Yeah, and they were just too young. Kids, like they, they, yeah. weren't, they weren't there at that stage to be internationals, but in a year or two's time. So like they, they were Lancaster players rather mm-hmm. than Jones players. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of curious about Eddie's squad-building credentials because I think he's placed a lot of faith in, in Marcus Smith, but I, I, I don't think it's worked. I don't, and I don't want to pin all the blame on Marcus Smith here. That if they if they got rid of him, that would be everything fixed. But he's he he's talked a good game over a number of summers about the benefits of bringing kids through and the pressure that they're going to put on players. But it's a it's a summer romance because if you look at the team that he picked over the autumn time, it's very much his first fifteen. England weren't really missing anybody. Agreed. And. There's there's very few uh, fresh face buccaneering young guys in there. Like it's all tried and trusted, gnarly Eddie favorites. So Eddie says one thing and does another in yeah. terms of refreshing his team. And they're the two bits that like they're both selection issues. Yeah, they're the two bits that stand out for me about where Eddie's team is at. Because on paper, like I was looking through the team against South Africa, that's a strong team. Not, not. I think his strongest team. He had Porter starting in the wing, which just didn't pan out whatsoever. But like the likes of his his front row, so he can go Genge or Mako Vonapola, Cowan Dickey or George, uh, Sinclair or step down then to Will Stewart. But otherwise, like that's strong. You know, that's a strong front row and a strong backup front row. And like if you if you look at playing numbers, England should always be in the semi-finals. One hundred percent. And if if and. You know, where else do you go from that? So you can sort of get into the semi-finals with a favourable draw. So England should be in the final every second World Cup. Like, it's it's a failure if you're coaching. And, Eng- and he's already done that. He's already averaged out his... He's had his final appearance. Mm. So on the law of averages, you know, he can get knocked out in the quarters of the semis. But, like, I mean, given England's player base and given how close... That's one thing. And then given how close to England they're playing the World Cup... Like England should be in the final yeah. in France. They got to the final last year or last tournament with a team which was still relatively young. Like a lot of that team are still there and you're thinking this team should be well placed. This team, sh- with with the amount of uh, continuity that, that it's had in it, that sh- team should have just built and built and built. And all he should have been doing was looking to add a few pieces and then to select foreign players. And instead he's talking about Oh, we're gonna. Re- I'm gonna reinvent rugby. Like in 2020 January, it's February 2020. So I want to be the best team ever. And you're going like, none of that has happened. You know, none of what you've said has happened. How how is he so bulletproof? And there's there is a reason for it. Like he's had an incredibly long career coaching at a very very high level. He's a really knowledgeable guy. And he's he invents things. He does invent things in rugby or invents strategies. But at the moment, it's like, this is not playing out. And then you also have the fact that, like, fucking fires everyone or people quit. Uh, no one talks that much about it in terms of, <clears throat> in terms of the, the, head, the assistant coaches who leave him. But, you know, we're in the grapevine. It's like he's incredibly difficult to work with. I think I think that's the other bit. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's the third bit. And I hadn't considered, I thought about it and hadn't considered about it. I thought about it at other times, mm-hmm. is that burn rate. And 
the the idea of um like many voices and like uh it's it's a bit it's a bit airy like it's a bit not airy fairy it's a bit um intangible that idea of being a good leader and like you know having this this layered <laughs> multi-headed leadership team but um it it it's it's definitely bringing people with you like it's definitely a feature because it must get very draining being the voice at the top that's always the voice in the room and it must get very boring for everybody else because you just you've heard it all the time and um i think i think it sort of petrifies uh, that, and that that's kind of what it looks like so as as look i mean these the, the narrative always is fits the story you know so if england win it would be because of eddie jones's burn rate and his demands for a certain level so and a certain I, type I of so personality i don't want to say that the opposite is is the reason that he's not doing well but it he does seem a very demanding and and so if, if you take it all the story bits of it the the consistency of the people involved in any work environment does make you better like n- not just on its own but if you have a lot of exp- if you have people with more experience rather than less experience and you have people who are still prepared to work hard they will do well like they'll make better decisions they make more informed decisions um, they get to the point quicker they get to the point quicker and they'll have an understanding like they'll have a lot of implicit knowledge built up um, and at the same stage you you have to you know you have to infuse it with fresh blood but you also need a culture that's prepared to listen to the fresh blood. Like, and you know, and you look at South Africa, and I, you're talking about Williams, uh, that it, it looks hard for him going into a team where he's not a World Cup winner. Like, that there is a challenge to going in. That it's not just that, like, you know, everybody has to listen to you. Like, if you're talking total nonsense, like people, people will know these guys are good at what they do. So, it's look i guess it's, it's it's one of the things why rugby's interesting is, is team games a lot of different personalities in it there's a lot of different people involved um and, and there's a dynamic that you can't capture from the outside looking in yeah and it and it takes off very quickly i would uh just your discussion of the ireland uh, game ireland england game in 2019 had me thinking that eddie's big plan will just to be be at the World Cup to almost just play against teams rather than, you know, go and present this is the English style. Like that team just kicked the put the ball on top of our weakness for the whole game. And 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 ran Manu and Billy whenever they want to get over yeah. the game line on but demand. They had the skill set to do it. Like they had four guys who were good kickers and he chose to play a kicking game against a guy who hadn't played fullback in ages, who wasn't fit enough to play fullback. Mm. So they had the skill set to do it. And like it's but you can see that the team that's, at the that's end, a challenge. Like. The team at the end of the All Blacks match, the, the skill set is in the players, though. Oh, you, you oh yeah, it's England. Like they've thousands of players, yeah. hundreds of thousands. Yeah. Of players. So it, I mean, it was just a, it was just a kind of passing thought in my head yeah. that is like when he did a lot of blather about, uh, you know, sort of shapeless positionless rugby. Everyone will be able to do everything. Uh, that's sort of bollocks. Um, and to the extent, sort of everyone's already been doing that for ages. Is in like your forwards have to be able to catch and pass now. And they have to be able to run pods and they have to be able to do this. But still, there's a division of labor. It's not make it up as you go along. And it never was in total football either. But uh, 
just the idea that like that's that is his smokescreen. Not to say that everything has been going to plan, but you could also imagine them kind of get running horses for courses against Australia and just you know picking on their scrum if they have and and yeah that's say, a good point. similar like similarly just what it, the teams they need to beat and then see where they get to in the World Cup. The bar for England, and just to reiterate this, because we've said it already, the bar for England is very different than it is for other countries. Like, it's very different than it is for Ireland or Wales or Scotland, just by pure dint of numbers. And the fact that they have a domestic league that, albeit it's struggling at the moment, is populated only by English uh, teams that all play in the same time zone, in the same country. They don't have to cross any borders. Um, like, that's a massive advantage. Huge massive advantage like it's, it's it's good for Ireland to be able to play professional rugby like to, to be able to locate four professional teams in the same country and travel relatively minor small you know minor distances to Wales and Scotland and it's good for Ireland to be able to confront the challenges posed by South African teams but the travel's a nightmare and like no one really can go to the matches from either of the away teams mm. unless you're coming over from London for a weekend or going on a holiday during the winter time. So England have two inherently inbuilt advantages, which means that like the low bar for them should be the semi-finals. Like if England don't get to the semi-finals, that is a failure. And yeah, flat out failure. Flat out failure. Whereas if Ireland got to a semi-final, that would be new ground for us, as we're all aware. So y- you can look at things from an Irish perspective and sort of go, well, Eddie got to the last World Cup final. He fucking should. I agreed. Digs like a demented mole there. Speaking of struggling Six Nations teams who are enthralled to a coach with a massive aura, widely rumoured that uh, Warren Gatland could um, take the Wales job should Wayne Pivak lose the head coach job. Uh they say never go back, but like Warren has such a strong relationship to Warren, like I know Gatland <laughs> has such a strong relationship to Wales. He's already kind of left for a year and did his sabbatical and uh, and and come back thing. It makes obvious sense, right? Wrong. Like I think he would. Now the the I think it would be like I think Wales are in such a a tricky spot and any digging that's going to be done is going to be of the upwards variety but like I think I think the thing that could bring him back is if they if the Welsh Rugby Union really panic and just throw money at him because he can come in if if, like the Welsh Rugby Union like still has quite a lot of money the Welsh Rugby Union makes more money than the Irish Rugby Union so if they say to Gatlin we'll give you a million to do the World Cup he'd be like okay (laughs) you know that's what it could be Um, he'd be welcome that people would see that as like this is our best chance of, of not absolutely, you know, being covered in flop sweat and corpsing on stage at the World Cup. He'd be welcome back in. I think that Wales are, uh, the, the Welsh national team at the moment is, like, it's just reaping the the um, the crop that, that has been sown over a number of years of, probably under investment in the regions and a lack of buy-in from fans into the regions and going to the games. Uh, and as a result, the lack of money in those teams and also just uh, the strange structure that they have where they could they could make the decision, the Welsh Rugby Union could make the decision to operate like the Irish Rugby Union, uh, but they don't. So I think Gatland 
would fail. Uh, and like, I think it would be a bad move for him. I think he would damage his, his own reputation. Now, that may not be that important. Like he's, he's done a huge amount. He's, he can't undo his reputation. I don't he think he damage, damage his reputation. You don't? No. I think he's, I think he's well enough established, won enough Grand Slams, associated with it, so many good memories that people have. That I don't, I don't think anything he could do would... Oh, no, your reputation. Say your reputation is a big slab of stone. If you have a bad... Like, if you end it badly, like, you knock a big corner off that stone and it's not the, it's not the monument that it was. What's, Ken, what's, what's Kenny Dalglish's reputation? Fucking legend. He is the king. He's got a stand named after him. Yeah. So it does, doesn't matter that he came in as a caretaker and had a difficult time. No, it doesn't matter at all. Like, I mean, it's, it's irrelevant. Yeah, that might be I, the most I, recent I, thing he did. Kenny, like he's, Daglish, he's the king. Kenny Daglish had a holistic, massive impact on oh. the city of Liverpool by going yeah. to like 96 funerals or 90 funerals. Like that's, that's a bigger reputation. That's as a human as well. Yeah, so maybe it's an invidious comparison, but I mean, uh, I'm struggling to think of anybody else. Like Kenny was the one that came to mind, but... Dave I mean, I, <laughs> no, if, if, it's hard to think of someone who's come back, but... I think what would happen is if he came back and it went badly, Welsh fans would go, geez, the bloody WRU really stuffed it up again uh, because they left Warren out. They hung Warren out to dry. We know he's good. So it must be the WRU's fault because they just get it in the neck for everything. WRFU? WRU? What is this? WRU. They are, they seem to be the kind of, this amorphous blame for absolutely everything that wrong with Wales rugby. And like, I'm sure it's actually lots of little things, but it just seems to be, uh, they're too parochial. And well, they have this ridiculous bad decision making and everything, but I, I couldn't get us. I couldn't really understand when I listened to the, the journalist on some of the 42s podcast, I couldn't really understand essentially why people didn't go to games. Like, that seems to be the biggest problem to me is that the people don't give a shit about the teams. But, like, why not? Because the double or you don't. That was, that was pretty my favorite. Well, I mean, I really enjoyed that interview, but uh, the way he pronounced double or you was, <laughs> was my favorite pick. It's, it's, it's a mouthful. It's really difficult. It's pretty difficult to say W and then or you. W and then or you. W or you. Um, so you got to say double or you, even though. That's, so, yeah, that's better. Um, so at the top of the game, they have this committee of 12 people who are against the regents. And like they're, they're leading it. Whether people realize it or not, that group of people are leading Welsh professional rugby and they're against it. So it's no wonder that people don't go to the games. Like, and and the, kind of the, the narratives that get put around it don't, don't fit and he, he made the point that like when the Ospreys were good they got big crowds when the Scarlets were good they got big crowds when the Scarlets are good and they're playing a European match they can't get enough the stadium isn't big enough like Welsh people will go and watch rugby but the <laughs> they have this I, I don't know how they ended up with it and I mean listen listen to that 42 podcast if you want to listen about Welsh rugby but they have this 12-man committee up the top, and it's impossible to get them overturned. You need to have, like, a 75% of the vote to get anything overturned. You're sort of going, like, nah, that's, like, it's just... So like, these, these lads are coming from... impossible to get this. They're coming from the community game. The community game has more 
like it's got more money than the pro game in so it's 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 like John Delaney. It's like you have this guy who in in Irish football who turns up to every rubber chicken dinner who gives out money for pitches and floodlights across the place who goes on the piss and sings songs and you know buys drinks for people all this mickey mouse nonsense and your team is shit your game goes nowhere and everybody's got astro yeah but you know everybody that has a ground has astro but most teams don't have a ground and you're going like this is football how can you go wrong with football like it's it's the biggest sport in the world. It's the best sport in the world. It's like we have this enormous league. Oh, sorry, we're on a rugby podcast. Whoops. We've got this enormous professional league being played in our nearest neighbors in the same time zone. That if we can't get our kids to go and play in, we can definitely, I mean, I certainly think we could have a professional league that would feed guys in at 19, 20 years of age rather than at 14 years of age and would be certainly capable of playing first division or maybe even pre- like i would say they'd be able to play premiership if you were set up a certain way um and you get transfer money coming back to like and yeah it is a spectacular miss a spectacular miss so i i don't think the double or you are as are as venal or as corrupt or as entertaining or as engaging <laughs> as john delaney <laughs> but like who is? Say the queen tomorrow. <laughs> Gotta say the queen tomorrow. Who? Who could be? But it's, you know, it's it's a more staid and boring version of the same parish pump politics that just you know buzzes up a good thing really easily. So, to follow that up, um, once Stuart Lancaster leaves, is there a redemptive arc for Wayne Pivac at Leinster? There is, and what he should do is, I'll only join. I'll only join, mate. If you sign Habousi on the left wing, and you go, <laughs> oh, why didn't why didn't I think of that? Yeah, that's a like I agree with both of the things. Like Pivac is currently his value is in the gutter. He's seen well. He's portrayed uh, rather unfairly, I think, as like a real problem for Wales. You go, man, that guy, in my opinion, is not the problem. Like I, rem- I saw his really well-coached Scarlet's teams. I saw his player identification at first hand. And you're going like, that guy can coach and that guy can select. Mm. Um, and he is, like, he's a good coach. No doubt in my mind. Absolutely. Um, so he's, he's probably getting, he's getting a serious kicking in the media now, the Welsh rugby media, which is like, vituperative and like really churns out the clickbait articles like in, there's an incredible amount of, of articles churned out of wells online like they have, <laughs> yes. they have some fucking i think they're at what trinity mirror and yeah. they just have that policy of really like oh, they said liverpool robot. echo and manchester even yeah. using the they same. test their london robots in <laughs> wales online yeah. and they just go like, feed it into the algo like six or eight articles a day like saying how shit wayne pivak is you know um and he's not you know, he's a, he's a good coach. He's a good rugby man. Um, and, you know, when you have experience of coaching at the, at the international level, you've got there because you've been successful. Nobody gives a shit coach an international job. You know, so you've been successful at a level which is the next step 
Pivac was coach of the year when he was in New Zealand. Pivac was a good coach when he was in New Zealand. He was a good coach. He was coach of the Scarlets, and he's still a good coach now. Who's yeah. just having a tough time reputation wise. Yeah, but if he was available, bingo. Yeah, that's if, a he's, great point. If, if he's available with his and then for Habosi. Oh, talk like, talk to me about Habosi. What's what's taken like what's taken so long? He's wonderful. Player. He's playing for runner. the Drua. Right, he's had an absolute beast of a season. Um, Explain who he is to the So Habosi, Habosi was is the Fijian left winger who absolutely gassed Ireland on the outside in the first few minutes and then put the ball back inside. And it didn't see much of the ball thereafter. And we, we were talking about, like, why don't we sign Fijian wingers? Because, like, they're brilliant. And about the, the numerous Fijian wingers who play for French teams. And then you're going... It couldn't be that the Fijian national team, given the pick of all the wingers that they have, would have a guy who is, relatively speaking, unattached. But here he is now, albeit playing in a tropical island paradise. He cannot be playing for very much in a tropical island paradise. Given the opportunity to go up and play in the Northern Hemisphere for one of, if not the best team in the Northern Hemisphere, in a position of need for Leinster, where through... A combination of injuries, which happens with guys who have fast twitch fibers and international absences, you are often going to need a guy who. Now, the thing is, he will be subject to international call-ups with with Fiji, but like the upside as a as a strike runner, as a try scorer, is like a get it over the line, like attack from your own half and score, kick over the top and score, like just give him the ball, just. Give him the give him the seed. Like, where <laughs> is the catch? Yeah, I like I I came back from from watching a couple of games in France at the start of the year. I was going to Fujian's the best player in the pitch all the time. The most enjoyable to watch. The most threatening with the ball in hand. Read the game really well. Really unpredictably good in how they carry out their skills. In that, like they throw these Ronaldo phenomenal type passes, like which just looks sort of a little bit incongruous or awkward and land perfectly. So going, we need some Fijians in the team. So I, I second, I second that. We'll put that upstairs. Just watch this. Great possible play, though. This shows how dangerous they are with the ball in the hands. Speaking of having fabulously talented Islanders in your backline, Australia uh, gave us a real right good rattle, really upset us. And then uh, had an absolutely remarkable comeback uh, against poor bedraggled Wales. And uh, that fellow with the extremely long name and a yeah. very fancy mullet. Um, and he's a bit of a mad looking character. Yeah. He had a, two now tries. Kanitawase. I think there's a better way to say it. Now Ganitawase. Um, Mark Now Ganitawase. So he played left wing in both games. Uh, he has the potential to be. Like it, there's now, uh, there's not going to be like a breakout star like Loma, but he could be the star, um, the star attraction of the World Cup. That's how good he is. He is fucking splendid player, brilliant in the air, unconventional in terms of his passing ability, brave, abrasive, incredibly quick, tall, strong, rangy, balanced. What a winger! And then you think of the other guys that they can get back into the team, guys who didn't play against Ireland. Uh, Karevi, Karevetti, like that's that's three seriously in like outstanding open field runners added to that Jordan Pataya Nikitao. You're going like you actually don't have enough positions on the pitch to get all those lads starting together. 
because you have to keep 15 for Reese Hodge, the mega boot. And then you were saying, you were saying, what about their clapped out halfbacks? I say they're clapped in. <laughs> <laughs> Think of, if you can get Quade Cooper's first choice and then Bernard Foley's second choice, just literally giving the right passes to those players. That is, that backline has the potential to, to turn upside down any game. Any game against any team, including the South Africans. Then, the important thing for... Um, for Dave Rennie, who I'm a fan of, to to do is to take a leaf out of Rogers' book and just play Will Skelton 80 minutes in every game. Don't worry about him not being fit enough. Will Skelton proved several times against Leinster that he is fit enough to play 80 minutes. Like Skelton has to be the centerpiece of that Australian pack. He makes he makes one player makes that pack big. Like he, that's a that's a unique. Uh, ability like uh, Uni Antonio doesn't make the French pack big on his own. Will Skelton makes the uh, the Australian pack big on his own, and then you can like then you can feed in the rest of the players. You know when they when they're when they're coming back to fitness. Scott Seal coming back to fitness. Uh, Tupo coming back to fitness. Mike Al- Alatoa is is he's an answer player. Al- Alatoa's brother. <laughs> um, and then Hooper. Valentini, like these are fucking good players, and you know they have more. They have like Frost is a good second row. They're like I think Australia. I'm just gonna. I wanted to get this out nice and early. Australia, my dark horses for the World Cup. There can only be one winner, so I don't think that they're likely to win it. Hence, they're being dark horses. What do, do, what do you know who? Do you know John Crook is? No, no one does. I didn't know who he was. I had to look him up. Um, and it just it's when you said uh, Will Skelton. So I think. <clears throat> and there are a lot of contenders, but one of the best, if not the best, quotes in sport is, lady, I'm not an athlete. I'm a ball player. And I just, if you paraphrase it for Will Skelton, it's like, mate, I'm not an athlete. I'm a rugby player. Like, he can be on the pitch for 80 minutes, and it, like, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter how fit or unfit he is. He will be at a certain level of conditioning because he's such a competitor. And I completely agree with you. You just have him on the pitch for 80. He will find a way. And those he, He'll get to a level of fitness. Like, he's obviously an enormous man who needs to train very hard. But, but he, he'll playing, do it. He'll do it. But also by playing, that keeps him fit. The more he plays, like, that is, that's, this is an old-fashioned uh, concept. But one that I still believe, and I remember it being said about Mike Ross as well, like, Mike Ross needs to play games to keep him fit, to mm. play games. And I think that's the same thing with Skelton. Play Skelton. Play him as much and as often as you can. Use him up. You know, that fella is going to, he is such a difficult player to play against. He's, like the South Africans rightly are like wild about Ibn Etzebeth. If you put up Ibn Etzebeth against Will Skelton, a player who I would, if we were playing a, playing against the Sharks or playing against uh, La Rochelle, I go, I would actually rather play against Ibn Etzebeth than Will Skelton. Oh, absolutely. I would, I would, and if you're picking a team where you're going to have play one against the other, you're on Skelton's team. Yeah. And like, like I'm not, I am not saying that to, to like downgrade or talk down about even Edsman, who's a great player. I just think Skelton is 
an absolute monster. A monster. So, that's the dark horse. But what about their uh, arrow pointing up, arrow pointing down, arrow pointing up form book? Like, yeah, that's they a good they question. Have a, they have a, a complicated a labor issue. <laughs> they have a complicated draw in the World Cup. I have no idea who's on the other side of the draw of the World Cup because all the, the four best teams are on <laughs> one side of the draw of the World Cup. Eventually, we're going to do a podcast about that stupid fucking three-year-old draw. But, you know, they've... Uh, I suppose they don't, have to, they don't have to beat any of Ireland, South Africa, New Zealand or France until at least the semi-final. Yeah. So, yeah. Hooper's a good captain. Yeah. Slipper, I don't think, is, is that good a captain. You know, but he does that. The more captains you can get in your team, the better for overall leadership. So... You know, if you can get like Quay Cooper has has emerged as a very responsible and upright young man after a mere fifteen years of larrikinism. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, so I think the more like those leaders are there, like Nick White isn't really a leader, but a lot of experience. Uh, Corbetti has leadership quality. Karevi has leadership quality. So I think as long as they. Like the Australian moral character, in my opinion, and this is informed by just talking to people who lived in Australia briefly, it has changed a lot since we were kids. The, it's the, it's become in some, it's become a, a less rural and more urban um, country, and in a lot of ways, that culture has shifted more towards. They're not as, what I'm saying is they're not as tough. They used to be tough outback lads and that's changed there's there's more tantrums and things like that but if they can if that can be righted australia can be a very good team yeah because they're they're clever i mean i thought their match against us aside from being very boring uh with loads of fussy refereeing decisions was a real indication of the fact that teams raid Ireland and are coming up with ways to play against Ireland rather than just, uh, you know, we're playing Ireland before we play Wales or before we play England or we, before we play France. Maybe not Wales, but like England or France. Mm-hmm. I thought that... Uh, and I, I can't remember that too often in autumn internationals against Southern Hemisphere teams. But I mean, I thought that Australia very purposely attacked the open side... I sorry the blind side I thought and and which means you you make you widen you widen the pitch widen. you make the pitch widen you widen, widen the pitch I prefer widen actually um, <laughs> why you widen the pitch as well as you know as well as attack but they're trying to attack down that side but then they often they they'd cross kick and they'd use their aerial game against somebody that they'd expose out there and they're sort of going like on a one on one on a cross kick like we'll win this. And like the upside is quite big, yeah. Because if we win it, we'll probably make a line break as well, you know. Or we'll really, we'll discommode Ireland because with it, it's very difficult for them to get around and get their line speed intact for for us to attack. Um, and of course, they competed at the breakdown ferocity, which which you would do with Hooper anyway. Yeah. But you know, as It always surprised me. Like, Johan van Graan did this for one match in charge of Munster that he really, really targeted the Leinster breakdown. And it really worked. It was in Thomond. And they didn't win. But, I mean, I think I think Will Connors had a, a worldie in, in that one, if I'm thinking of the right match. But I remember how awkward it was to play against. And thereafter, he never did it again. And 
I could never figure out why not. Like, what you have to do against Leinster is target the rooks. And Matt Williams wrote about this a few weeks ago. But, like, it's not new. You look at the way Leinster play and you look at, like, to be honest, like, Montpellier did it in the match. Probably with Jake White coaching them. And it caused a lot of issues and then they just ran out of legs uh, and they were playing away. But you go, like, that's that's how you challenge Leinster is that, like, you take away the rook speed. And... It's what the Bulls did. So if you remember the yeah. Robillard, their hooker in the semi-finals, like, geez, that fella won three clean turnovers and probably, and the Bulls probably had another two lads who won a turnover each and gone, all of a sudden, like, we've lost five fucking turnovers. And Lester you know? didn't have the blocks. They didn't yeah. have any fucking lineouts because the Bulls were a lot of them. So, <laughs> you know. Um, so look, it's, it's not unique. Like, there aren't that many strategies, but it's certainly very effective and the Aussies really targeted. They are well coached. So, sorry, what came across for me was the fact that Rennie can prepare a team for a one-off match. Um, and I'm, like, I think Tupu and, I can't remember the name of the hooker now, but I think, the, like, those two guys are very good. Falao Fyngar. Yeah. And Slipper's good. So you're very good front row. Yeah. And you got Skelton in your second row. So you've got good front five. You're, you're laughing. And Valentini, right? their number eight. And Valentini's very good. Us. And Hooper's yeah. good. But, like, their front five are very competitive. Yeah. If, if they're all fit. Um, which means you've always got a chance. Thunder's in there. That'll knock the wind out of him. Just watch this. Great passage of play, though. This shows how dangerous they are with the ball in the hands. Now, back at home, Leinster are taking on Ulster for the right to unify Ireland under <laughs> High King Josh van der Fleer. Yeah, I was so happy. Uh, it actually surprised me how how happy I was when I read that morning that he got World Player of the Year. I felt uh, that in because he played in the last match of the Autumn Internationals when Sexton was missing, and Amos obviously missed half the season, and um, and uh, Dupont was injured. I was thinking like Van der Fleer was probably in in prime position of the four shortlisted players to take it, and. Uh, you know, I think he turned up with the usual like twenty tackles or something like that. I thought like he's he's probably going to win this. So it really surprised me how happy I was uh, uh, when when I saw that he had won it. Like I was delighted for him. Like he has been such a he's been a player who has improved year on year. He's a guy who came into uh, the Leinster system without a, like a, the sort of formidable hype that accompanies really. So many of, of Leinster's academy prospects, like this guy's going to be amazing. This guy, like Josh Van der Fleer was was relatively unheralded. He he was unheralded. There was no relative about it. And you know you knew that Levy was coming up behind him. And you're going and Levy like not taking anything away from Levy. He's a fucking amazing player. But like it was like Levy would probably pass him out the way that you know for example Doris passed out Max Deegan, who won you know for a pair of years in under twenty. Van der Fleer kept on getting better year on year on year like I thought in in 2019 that like he got through that World Cup he played in all the important games you're going like just didn't let anyone down but like he didn't blow the doors off like Ireland's back row didn't blow the doors off in in that and you're going like that back row of O'Mahony, Stander and Van der Fleer doesn't work together I remember thinking that time probably even writing and saying it I was thinking like there has to be changes there Two of those guys are still in situ, you know, and and I would have said at the time that Stander was like the best performer of the original three. So it's just like Van der Fleer has once again got better. 
you know, the, the, the biggest element, I suppose, this time around in terms of like his, his progress was, was the most obvious one. It's like the explosive ball carrying. But I would also point back to the games he played against New Zealand in 2016. Um, where he was, you know, a really young player in those games. If you look back over those games and look at the meters, the carry meters that he made in both those games, the uh, away game in Chicago when he came on very early for Jordan Murphy, he actually carried quite a lot. And then the home game when he had a very big game, very big game, and he had a good game again. He was played out wide a lot, yeah. and he played out around second center in the home match. I, yeah. I had it wrong. I thought he went off early. No, Jordy went Jordy off. Jordy went off. Josh came on, yeah. and then Josh went off early against France in yeah. France in twenty eighteen. Yeah. So I was, I was, um, I was firmly in that camp of Omani and Vanderfleer isn't physical enough to play international flanker as a combo, and I would have dropped one or both of them happily, um, and I like I'm astonished. I'm delighted. I've um, because it's. It, it's obviously taken like so much work, but I mean, he would have been a hard worker anyway, you know, but like, and so much application and just the, the mentality and the ability to change. And if there's one match for Josh van der Fleer that stands out in memory and I don't know, like a suits corner here, but um, he played a match for UCD against the club in, in Lakelands and he won man of the match and he had the red scrum cap on and you're, so December 2014, is that right? 15? 14 and um i remember thinking oh like he's good but like he's a pro you know you can mm -hmm. see you can see the difference between him playing against juki you know like juki's brilliant and but you know he's been played off by a guy who's training professionally with leinster and i looked up that i looked up that match just to get the date right and jordan cochran was playing beside him in the ucd Back rows, Jordan is playing at number eight. So Jordan's now playing for Ternier and Van der Fleer is the world player of the year. And like Jordan playing, like Cochran's playing very well. Yeah. You know, yeah but player. he's not playing as well as Josh Van der Fleer. Yeah. And on the day, you you wouldn't, like on the day Jordan Cochran was in the Leinster squad or the Leinster, the wider Leinster. Like he, he was a pro as well. He yeah. was training as well. So the... The amount that Van der Fleer has applied himself and improved and improved and improved is is like simply staggering. It's exactly um, the word I was thinking of. And it's as you said afterwards, like he's his his name is on the list. He is he is in an incredible pantheon of players. Yeah. Like he's McCaw. McCaw, Dusatoire are the last two flankers I can think who or sorry, sorry, Peter Steph Detroit. And was Dusatoire after McCaw? McCaw no, won it McCaw subsequently. McCaw won it in 2015 as well. And, and McCaw. So, you know, that's, they're the, they're the three, they're the most recent yeah. three guys in the back row. Yeah. And Kieran fourth, Reed as well. Kieran, like, you know, so absolutely. <laughs> like that's, that he's now in that gang. That's his lineage. Like it is, it is, it's breathtaking. Yeah. That a guy who was playing the AIL <laughs> is, is in that. Yeah. Is in that group. And, you know, it's not just like, it's not just, oh, the ball carrying. Like, if you look at it, for example, his passing off the base of line-out malls, you're going like, that guy is as good a passer as, like, he's, he's a, he's as pass as good as, like, a, a good scrum half at club level, like, at, at professional club level. Really good passer to ball. He gave this interview where he's there going, I couldn't, uh, he said, I couldn't buy a, a turnover. 
So I just started barging the rock and it really worked out for me. And now I was thinking, like, yeah, oh yeah, that's absolutely right. Like Josh couldn't buy a turnover. Still but, can't. But he found some other way yeah. to just like to you go, okay, if I'm not if I don't have that instinct for it, I'm still gonna like my fitness, which is his fitness is otherworldly. Like I remember comparing him to uh, to uh, the Miko from from the very early days of CrossFit with the, the Sisu, the toughness of just getting up and going at things. And like his time on the ground is fucking nothing. Vanderfleer is always just getting up off the ground as soon as he hits the ground, and then just barging into somebody rock and just working, not just like hitting the rock and then going, oh now I'm in it and just hold on to this fella. So I keep on going, keep on going, keep on trying to work this guy backwards. And if he gets flung over. Like if somebody sort of judos him, it's like get up and get back into it, or go up and get back into the line. Line speed is, is line speed in, in the defense again is world leading. And and I and tackle I think technique is great. I was chatting with uh, Blaney about it earlier, and it was it was Dave that brought it up, and he was talking about you know having kids and would you want your kids to play rugby and what it's like. And this is obviously a guy who played professionally in the mm-hmm. front row, and he was saying if you look at the way they carry now. If you look at how aggressive they are and carrying compared to like how aggressive they are defending you, you're going to get smashed. Look at the way Josh Vanderfleer. So he just he 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 conjured his name out of nowhere. And the reason I'm saying that is that for Vanderfleer to win that sort of award, it isn't just like a bunch of Irish journals that are giving it to him. Mm. It's this like you have to front up. Like you would have had to play tough against players. So again, to go back to my. Uh, my quotes is, uh, I think it's one of the Gracie quotes. I don't know which one of the Gracies it is, but it's not like you're not born tough. You train. You're not. You're not born hard. You train hard. Mm. You're not born tough. You train tough, and that because like Vanderfleer still comes across like there's no handbags with Vanderfleer. He isn't a guy for chip shop posturing and you know grabbing collars and you know making the angry face. All he does is just smile all the time. Yeah. And he goes like, you know, he puts a scrum hat, you know, he puts a scrum cap in the belt of his shorts and he goes up and shakes everyone's hands and smiles at them afterwards. Yeah. And like, there's no nonsense. But he's also, he brings it for 80 minutes. Yeah. And it's, it's, I mean, it's a brilliant indication that you can do that and you can still be really hard. You yeah. can still train hard. Like a Wilkinson. Like a you Wilkinson. Know? So people are saying, like, oh, yeah, sometimes they go, oh, you have to be a bit of a, you have to be a bit of a prick to be a winner going, well, Dan Carter and Johnny Wilkinson aren't pricks. You know? Neither is, neither, by the way, neither is Richie McCaw, who is a great guy. And neither mm. is Terry Dusitoire. Like, that does not carry across. Like, it's, the main thing is you have to be, to be really good at rugby, you have to be really good at rugby and you have to be tough. And you sort of have to stick to, like, if you are an angry bastard, yeah. go with it. Yeah. You know? Um, but, like, Alex Candellan, Oh, is cool. the name that comes to man in Ireland that he's had all this kind of collar grabbing nonsense and you go it's a waste of energy that's not you buddy that's not you you you're Dave take, Wallace you take your energy on getting as fit as you can and spending as little time on the ground as you can and as much time with the ball in your hands as you can and you will do much better than wasting your time hanging around the end of you know when rooks are gone grabbing onto some guy's collar making your war face it doesn't work for you it's nonsense yeah. Bullshit. Yeah, and for some people it does work. That's their thing. Yeah, for some people, yeah, for some people yeah. it works, but it doesn't work for Kendall. No. So and like Josh Van der Fleer never needed. He's the best yeah. player in the world. So oh, I'm delighted for him. Can he unify the two kingdoms though at the weekend? <laughs> <laughs> well, well placed to do it. 
I mean, a man of his lineage. Certainly. <laughs> it's the compromise canvas. <laughs> they don't build them like that anymore.